This essay, The Dumbest Mindset, is an attempt to suggest that a lot of our bias toward stasis, a lot of our bias toward finding one best way to do things and then stay put is an artifact of hundreds of years, thousands of years really, of our various cultures conditioning us to favor stasis. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris, and this is Freedom, a show about ideas that matter. Freedom is an independent, listener-supported show. If you value these conversations, please consider becoming a supporter. You'll get access to episode transcripts, bonus content, and our Discord community. Learn more at freedom.audio slash join, or look for the link in the show notes. For the first episode of our new show, we wanted a big idea. One that has the potential to reconfigure how we think about politics and political institutions. And that meant bringing back one of our favorite guests, our good friend, Jason Kuznicki. Jason is the author of the fascinating book, Technology and the End of Authority, What is Government For? Today, he introduces us to the Damas Complex, a way of understanding the power structures of politics and culture as downstream consequences of the lords, wives, servants, and slaves structure of historical households. We frequently think of the rise of civilization as coinciding with the rise of agriculture or being enabled by the rise of agriculture. But you make the fairly stark claim, I will quote from your essay that is the topic of today's conversation, that the first settled agricultural societies took the form of increasingly permanent prison camps. What does that mean? There's uh, there's been a lot of recent archaeological discoveries about this time in history and uh, a lot of uh, new methods used things like satellites and drones to reveal uh, structures of of production in the the earliest uh, ancient civilizations we yeah, the term civilization means a a group of people who live together and have both writing and social classes and uh, one of the first places we find this is in the Tigris and Euphrates Valley in the form of Sumerian civilization. And uh, we are more and more discovering that agriculture, while in some ways a step forward technologically, was also uh, uh, enabling of a lot of uh, things that we might find very troubling, including slavery on a mass scale, and uh, it does it does appear that the hunter gatherers who preceded the uh, first settled agriculturalists and the very earliest settled agriculturalists before the rise of the state. Uh, both may have had much uh, easier lives, much freer lives, uh, better nutrition, fewer parasites. Uh, They may or may not have been more violent, it's difficult to say, but uh, as I say in the essay, one thing we don't find in their artifacts are big piles of fetters, uh, irons to, to bind the uh, the feet of uh, captives to take them as slaves. If this is true, and I have no reason to believe it's not, but it's it's a good. Obviously, this is a great conversation for the very first episode of our podcast called Freedom, uh, where we talk about what this means. 
But if this is true, where, where does the normative point that this might matter? Is it the case that we tend to take the the happenings of the past and regard them as inevitable or desirable in a way that we shouldn't? Um, is that is that the kind of thing you're trying to get at this essay that the things could have been different? But even but do we get to a normative point even if things could have been different that that therefore means they should change now? Well, the first implication of of uh, this research, which uh, by the way is uh, summarized in uh, James C. Scott's book uh, Against the Grain, uh, the point of this re one point of this research is that. Uh, Whereas we have often told history as the story of everything that leads up to us, and we tend to view past developments as paving the way for where we are now and and building up to where we are now in in the sense that there's been some some progress in the past, and now we've we've reached the pinnacle of civilization where we are. Uh, this research calls that into question. Uh, early civilization was not a a uh, straightforward, unmitigated good. It was uh, full of, uh, frankly, horror for a lot of the people who lived in it. It was a it was a miserable time, and uh, the uh, reason that's important is that. Uh, uh, we we can't really tell that uh, comforting story about how uh, ancient Sumer is is paving the way for where we are right now. It's it's a morally very troubling society. I guess the question I'm asking is that it doesn't seem to me like people actually tell that comforting story. I mean, no one says, "Hey, look, it was you know the only way history could have gone done." I mean, what you said there, history obviously is the story of what came leading up to us now. So, but I don't think anyone tells the story that ancient world was awesome, things were great, and then something happened different. No, 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 not that. No, but uh, but that they were a step on they were a step on the path of progress and that agriculture improved the human condition. That certainly is that certainly is is a widespread belief. And uh, this isn't so clear anymore certainly not in the way that it was deployed. Uh, if you were to have a settled agricultural society that did not enslave and that did not practice conquest using an army that was fed by calories extracted from slave labor, if you were to do agriculture without all the rest of that, that's great. And in fact, it does seem that for quite a few centuries that took place. But... Uh, agriculture did open up the possibility of mass enslavement, and that is exactly what happened. And uh, the major civilizations that we recognize at, in the early civilizational period, uh, these all practiced slavery. They all practiced conquest based on calories extracted from slave labor being used to feed an army, which goes out and uh, rounds up more slaves. They all did that. How does this get us to the rise of lords? Because I think I was telling Trevor ahead of time um, that this this is one of those essays that threatens to reconfigure one's worldview in the sense of like once you once you see things through this lens, it 
you increasingly see things through this lens and it changes the way that we think about a lot of our, our contemporary culture. But the question of whether agricultural societies in Sumerian times were horrors or were slave states doesn't seem to have an immediate connection to the kind of reconfiguring one's worldview that, that I just mentioned. And so how, how do we get from there to here? I wanted to write an essay that was a companion to the work that James E. Scott has been doing. He is very concerned with material practices and economic history. And uh, I am a, an intellectual historian by training. And uh, I asked myself, how is it that the uh, material practices of the far ancient world, the deep history of the ancient world, how do those material practices shape the uh, intellectual and cultural developments of that same society? And how did they set the trend for history that followed? How did they influence uh, history into much more recent times? Uh, Scott refers to what he calls the domus complex. Domus is a Latin word. Uh, it means household, but the uh, Roman household was a much larger and more complex and socially stratified and coercive thing than our households today. Uh, a household today might be a nuclear family and a small amount of land that it owns, but they generally are not subsisting on that land. A Roman domus would be a nuclear family plus extended family members, plus enslaved people, plus their animals, plus a whole lot more land in general than a typical American family might own. And it is all very, very, very hierarchical. If you are an adult male who lives in a domus, you might even so still be dependent on a uh, salary, basically, that was paid to you by the patriarch. If you are a woman, you have very, very few legal rights in Rome. If you are a slave, you have even less. And uh, the person who is in charge of you is, again, the patriarch. And uh, this this mode of social organization can be found not just in Rome, but in ancient Greece. There are similar there are similar formations. Uh, Ulysses uh, appears to have appears to have lived in something very similar to this, where uh, the household owns uh, agricultural land. The household does a great deal of production itself. It has uh, the family the extended family, the slaves, the animals, the land, all working together in a very, very similar way. And he traces this back uh, with admittedly changes to uh, even uh, even uh, ancient uh, Sumer and proto-civilizational formations. Uh, it is a pattern that gets repeated again and again and again. Always at the top, there is a lord. There is a patriarch. There's someone who is, who is in charge of the domus. And how do you justify a, a, a setup like this? How do you, how do you say, well, this is, this is good? 
And one way to do that is to reflect it in the cosmos. It is often a case that uh, the gods of the peoples that we are talking about have similar social arrangements and they use similar terms for their gods. Uh, the Semitic word uh, Baal, B-A-A-L, is uh, both a god and a landlord. It can mean either one. Sometimes uh, it can even be hard to tell which one an author is talking about. Uh, we have a long history of likening rulers to gods. And uh, we can see this even, even in the Christian tradition, which prides itself on, on supposedly being monotheistic. Uh, if you look at uh, the ideology of the great chain of being, God is at the top, there are angels below God, and right below that there are absolute monarchs. And the absolute monarchs are, are akin to God, they are answerable only to God, and purportedly that's how the whole social system runs. You are, you are below the absolute monarch, you know your place, you have your place, and you stay in your place, and uh, that's how we're going to get along. One reason I really like your essay is because it's in the most abstract, in an abstract way, it's about contingencies versus inevitabilities. And in many ways, when we have political conversations of any sort, it is a conversation about contingencies versus inevitabilities. People who take on naturalistic arguments for how things have to be. Um, say that this is therefore normative and people who say, oh, it didn't have to be this way. And we could apply that to everything from, you know, the household, as you talk about, to power relationships, to sexuality, to all these things that are, you know, people either think are contingent or natural or inevitable in that way. When it comes to the Domus, which is such a huge center of your essay, um, to, to sort of clarify your argument for listeners, you're arguing that it was essentially contingent on certain agricultural arrangements and you could have had a different situation where there were, I don't exactly how to say this, different family structures, different hierarchical structures, then became the centerpiece of Roman society and that matters. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the Domus complex and the, the kind of... Uh, civilization that I'm, I'm talking about had some material requirements and they're not, they're not necessarily intuitive. And so I'm going to, to talk a bit about that now. Uh, above all, what's important here is to be able to use grain as a vector for taxation. So uh, if you are a peasant, even in a country as far removed as Japan, in traditional Japan, you have a uh, tax per person that they're supposed to supply of a set amount of rice. And uh, you fill up your rice box, you turn that in, that is your, your tax portion and you've paid your taxes. And this is really, really important because grains like wheat and rice have a crucial property. They can be stored. They can be stored for years and still be valuable and still be consumable. And uh, they're also easy to move. You can take that on the road with the army. The army can go somewhere else and expand and uh, conquer the next valley over or what have you. 
not all crops are like that. Some crops you can't as easily store. Some of them you can't as easily measure. Some of them are best left in the ground. Uh, if you're growing root crops like uh, potatoes or taro, they should stay in the ground to, to be stored. And uh, they, aren't, they aren't as effective for feeding a massive army. And there's, there's a whole lot less point in, in trying to extract them also because uh, they can be hidden very easily. You can plant upland taro in the mountains and then just not tell the tax collector that you have this valuable taro patch. Uh, so uh, you, you can't really do that with rice because rice requires a massive setup with irrigation and fields and they're, you know, it's all grown together in a big, you know, a big patty, an organized area of land that is measurable and knowable and therefore taxable. So yes, the, uh, the preconditions for this society are very much material, but then we can't stop our analysis there. We have to, we have, or we ought to continue on and ask about the types of cultural formations that that makes possible. And one of them is slavery. We abolished slavery though, at least in this country, it exists in, in pockets throughout the world still, but, but most of the, most of the civilized world does not hold slaves. We moved to democracy, to a system where we don't have a king anymore, or if we do, they tend to be a figurehead and where ordinary people have a say in, in the rules that govern them. So how does this how does this domus mindset still exist in today's world? And I'll give one kind of flip example as you a couple of a little while ago when you were characterizing this as these lords that kind of have this superhuman ability over us and we report to them and we're subject to them and we get our largesse from them. Um, sounded on the one hand very much the way that like heterodox or orthodox objectivists talk about businessmen like these are the randian superheroes are these these lords that give us then that we then benefit from um it also put me in mind on trevor and i had had some conversations in the past with the professor elizabeth anderson at university of michigan and she talks about the relationship within a firm between employer boss and employees um and and the kind of controlling nature of i want to dictate your time i want to dictate your behavior i will i will pay you but you will be subject to my will um if you don't like it you can leave but if you leave you'll probably come back because you're not going to get a better job elsewhere um and i'm going to surveil you increasingly well, I don't know if I would. I don't know if I want to lay all of this at, at the feet of Ayn Rand's heroes and say that this is this is them. I think that that seems like a bit of a stretch. But what absolutely does not seem like a stretch to me is uh, to point out that the plantation in the Old South was exactly a domus. It was nothing else. It was exactly the sort of setup that I'm talking about. Crops were extracted from an enslaved population, their labor was taken from them, their freedom was taken from them. In a very hierarchical system, there was a family at the top, there was a master who was in charge of the family, uh, 
uh, there were other hangers on and and uh, various uh, officials and and uh, uh, overseers of the system, and it was militarized. It was understood to be uh, a system that was maintained by violence and that uh, contributed to a still larger collective which had an army and without which the slaves obviously would have uh, gone into revolt and overthrown the system. So uh, while this is an ancient formation, it's also one that uh, certainly played a role in American history and a major role in American history. Uh, we, have, we have absolutely moved away from a lot of the features of this system, which I think is a, a very good thing, obviously. Uh, but it's worth asking, how exactly did we do that? And one of the steps that I think is is crucial for uh, sort of taking the next step in, in civilizational development, if you will, is uh, to move away from subsistence agriculture. And that was already happening in the Old South because the major crops that uh, were were being grown uh, under compulsion were uh, in many cases not subsistence crops at all they were cash crops they were things like cotton of course and tobacco and uh, then those crops were sold in what was increasingly a globalized market so there's a bit of a hybrid there between the traditional domus formation and the uh, modern capitalist economy. But then the question is whether long-term the two are compatible with one another, and I would argue that they are not. Uh, I would argue that when we can specialize and apply more advanced agricultural technologies to the problem of, of feeding the population, uh, when that happens, suddenly we don't all have to work on uh, just raising enough food to feed ourselves. We can find other ways of making a living. And the vast majority of people in the world, uh, in, in the developed world, do not work in agriculture. Yes, agriculture is still essential, obviously, but it's a small percentage of, of people who actually do it for a living. And uh, that, in, in a way, allows us to be much more flexible with our, our social relations. The, the uh, sort of uh, mythological explanation for the Domus is that it's what the gods want. But the real practical explanation for the Domus is that it is a bad but very stable equilibrium. Because if you're not organized in a way that compels everyone to pay into a tax system to support an army, then you're gonna get conquered by the people who do have that set up. You're gonna get conquered by the people who are already practicing to build an empire. And uh, if you don't want that, well then you need to develop your own uh, setup and develop your own tax system, develop your own army pay them with the grain that you have taken from the people that you have enslaved put yourself at the top of the hierarchy 
and uh, thereby escape foreign domination. And uh, that, that plays in very directly to uh, the, the Roman concept of liberty, which is not that each individual gets a wide variety of different things that they may blamelessly choose in their lives. Uh, the Roman idea of liberty is that we exercise self-rule instead of foreigners ruling over us. And self-rule in Roman society was rule of the patriarchs who were the organizers, the administrators, the military leaders of a system based on the domus, based on extraction, based on the uh, army paid for out of taxation. Slavery features heavily into your, your essay, but one question is just, you mean literal slavery when you say, because other people sometimes say, because like you have a slave, if you mean a literal slave, meaning his legal status or her legal status is not as someone who has freedom and freedom of choice or to leave, but you also have workers who some people will call like existing in a, a state of slavery, like serfs, or even possi I'm, possibly I'm not women. Talking about, I'm not talking about wage slaves. I am talking about, I am talking about chattel slaves, and I am talking about serfs who, well, they were not usually bought and sold. They were still bound to the land and legally forbidden from leaving it. Which uh, there are there are degrees of slavery, and I'm not going to get into an argument about about you know, the relative badness of them, but uh, I will say that being a serf is a substantially unfree condition. And, well, the, you, you miss out on the indignity and the, you know, the depravity of being sold away from your family. Still, it is, not a, uh, it is not a great situation to be in, and it's not one we should regard as, as uh, uh, morally acceptable either. Yes. Yeah, so the reason I asked so if there's there's legal conditions of people in this domus in different societies, some can leave, some can be sold, some can't leave, some have different legal opportunities. Um, does it matter more that there is a legal relationship within this domus, depending on the society, or does it matter more that the the hierarchies are internalized and the legal status matters less, say, for women than it does for, say, actual slaves? in one of these domuses? Uh, I, I, I think the question you're asking is about whether politics is downstream from culture or, or vice versa. And, uh, and, and my view on that is that they're entangled, that uh, culture and politics are in conversation with each other. And uh, uh, there are some ways in which, in which uh, material conditions or, or, uh, standing intellectual formations uh, in some ways determine the law, but the law can also end up working changes in either of those. So it's it's complicated, and 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 looking to uh, sort of untangle that uh, that causal knot, uh, yeah, that's an appealing project for a historian, but I don't know that it always it always works out one way or the other. I don't know that we can say, ah, the law is the master here and it's always in charge. And if you just rewrite the laws, everyone will be good. But I also don't know that if we just get the culture right, we'll always have good laws. It seems as though, uh, it seems as though, you know, to me that they're, they're, uh, they're both 
in conversation with each other and both of them have some influence on one another. And uh, I, I've seen attempts to say one or the other is uh, always in charge. If you're a Marxist, you believe that things flow all from the material conditions. And I would say certainly material conditions and you know, technological uh, capabilities are, are very, very important to this story, but I don't know that they are they are the key that explains everything. And I think often, often people who try to write big history go astray by thinking that they found the key that explains everything when, when really they found just one useful puzzle piece. The culture part of this I found particularly fascinating because so far we've been talking a lot about concrete's not the right word for it, but, but like actual relationships of domination and power, slavery, you are held in bondage and will be punished or hurt or killed if... Yeah, it's so far it's been about who gets their hands dirty, who gets their hands right. bloody. But, but the, yeah. the interesting part uh, was but, for me, I mean, it was all fascinating, but the one of the really interesting parts was how much, even when we don't think of ourselves, sit around saying, I am in a domus relationship with this group of people or this person, how much we have kind of internalized this almost metaphor for the world. Can you speak a little bit to that? Like how this plays out outside of immediately obvious power relationships? Yeah. So uh, this essay is uh, drawing on two of my favorite books. One of them is, already, I've already mentioned James C. Scott's Against the Grain. The other one which I, this is going to come out of left field for anybody who knows it, but the other book of this essay is is really driven by is Virginia Pastrell's The Future and Its Enemies. And I, I read this book in 1998 when it first came out, and it's been one of the biggest influences on how I think about the world. And uh, in that book, there is uh, an argument that the real uh, consequential political division in the world is not between left and right, between conservatives and progressives, but between rather stasists and dynamists. And the uh, stasist worldview, which can be progressive or conservative, is a worldview that says there is one best way to do things and we're going to do it, and then we're going to stop. And our civilization, uh, you know, our culture is not going to change very much after we've gotten to the one best way. And the dynamist way of thinking about, uh, about uh, politics and about culture is that the world is open-ended and full of surprises, and it always will be. And that, by the way, is a good thing. And uh, she finds that dynamism is relatively rare and, and that there is a strong bias towards stasis, and she blamed both of the political parties in the late 90s for uh, being essentially stasists of two different flavors. And I think she was right about that, and I think that has continued to be right. Both political parties, in a sense, have a one best way that they have in mind, and when they get to that way, then they promise things can stop. And... Uh, I have asked myself over the years, why is it that there seems to be this bias toward one best way, toward uh, returning to 
traditional society, perhaps, or toward building a technological Marxist utopia in which then there doesn't have to be any change. Uh, either one of those is a stasis vision, really. And this essay, The Domus Mindset, is an attempt to suggest that a lot of our bias toward stasis, a lot of our bias toward finding one best way to do things and then stay put is an artifact of hundreds of years, thousands of years, really, of our various cultures conditioning us to favor stasis. Uh, we have many, many, many uh, folk tales and myths and religious stories that are more or less centered on or take pla taking place on Adomus. I've already talked about the Odyssey as a story of getting back to Adomus. That's what it is. Uh, I don't want to upset our uh, Christian listeners, but uh, I will just point out that the Lord's Prayer is a prayer asking that you be taken to the place where the Lord is in charge, and he will give you bread. He will protect you from your enemies. This is a, a prayer that comes out of a Domus-like cultural uh, vocabulary. What does heaven look like? It's a really great Domus. It is a Domus where the Lord is good, where the bread is abundant, where the enemies are kept out. Uh, this is a Domus doing what it's supposed to do. And you may interpret that in other ways. There are other readings that are available for it, but uh, yeah, sort of the uh, uh, you know, taking it on its own terms and not trying to apply any fancy hermeneutics to it sounds an awful lot like uh, what a, a serf would be asked. You know, say, say you're a serf, but you know, what's the best you can hope for in your current condition? That's it. And why did it appeal to a... Uh, a uh, culture like the European culture, because there were a lot of serfs, and this was a prayer that they could relate to. This made their everyday concerns uh, into something that were were written larger, were were spiritualized, and uh, that was why it was appealing. I'm also a big fan of Virginia's book, and and we so if we have a reason why there are as you said, stasists, or as she said, and dynamists, and that there are obviously status quo bias and cultural contingencies and cultural uh, investments that would lend themselves to them as a matter of economics and sociology. Uh, where does the whole concept of that you lay out in your essay and, and including Virginia's thesis, where does it put human freedom in there? Because some people want to say this entire thing of political theory is just a question about human freedom. Say libertarians want to say that. Um, it seems like your essay kind of wants to challenge the simplicity of a definition or sense of human freedom. I, I definitely want to do that. I think that we're bad at thinking about freedom. And one of the ways that I would... I, I would suggest that we are bad at thinking about freedom is that the domus mindset constantly seems like it's trying to creep back in, even despite ourselves. Uh, the domus requires a great deal of uh, 
discipline about uh, gender and uh, and sex and reproduction. And that's necessary because it's got a whole bunch of people living in very unequal but relatively crowded conditions. And uh, it is nonetheless necessary to be uh, constantly turning out uh, more uh, workers and uh, more uh, soldiers. And uh, for people to carry on doing that in relative stability requires uh, uh, certain uh, discipline and uh, certain ethos as, as far as sexual relations go. And so societies that are, are marked by the domus complex tend to be very gender inegalitarian. Uh, they tend to have relatively fixed gender roles. They tend to uh, insist that people must stay there. They tend to uh, frown on things like abortion, uh, birth control, homosexuality. And uh, there is very much a strain of conservatism in the United States today that is still uh, insisting on that type of program. It has not gone away. And not only that, but they will tell you, they will tell you that they are uh, trying to enact this program out of uh, a search for an attempt to secure liberty. What are Moms for Liberty doing? Uh, they are censoring books that have, uh, have uh, views of, of gender and sex in them that they don't approve of. For liberty, they are censoring for liberty. Uh, so uh, this is this is a, uh, a a contradiction that that deserves to have a light shown on it. I would say one of the most important facts I think about the political world that that often gets downplayed when we talk about political theory and we talk about ideal institutions and we talk about how to structure a society is that. Somewhere between a quarter and a third of people have an authoritarian personality type. Like this is just you, you can you can give them batteries of tests to tease this out, but it is fundamentally their personality is drawn to authoritarianism. And what that means in practice is that they have a strong desire for stasis and they view dynamism and difference as really scary threats to themselves and their way of life. And when things change too much or they become aware of people who are different from them, it can trigger and they can they start demanding that the state intervene. They start embracing strongman leaders. They have moral panics about groomers and so on. They just like they at some level are psychologically incapable of kind of existing in a cosmopolitan dynamic modern society. And it seems like that's what latches on to the Damas mindset to a great extent is that what the Damas is is a is a structure of stability and knowing one's place in this great chain of being. I know who is above me. I know who is below me. I know what my role is every day is to do this thing and anything that might disrupt these relationships. And I think that can be where the, the freedom thing comes in because if – 
a lot of people, I think, just view freedom as my ability to kind of live the life, live my life the way that I want to live it. And if I can do that, then I am free. They may not articulate it that way. But you've already said too much there. You've already said too much because there are many forms of life wherein I want to live the way of life that I want. Already that is uh, incorporating a demand that others must live in certain ways. My way of life requires that you also go to church on Sunday and avoid drinking alcohol and raise your children in certain ways and not others and et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera. And that is, uh, that is the problem. That's, uh, that is exactly the problem. Uh, one of the ways that the uh, Domus mindset lives on in modern liberal democracies is in the management of the morals of our neighbors, which we still use the state to try to do. The Romans did it, and we do it. We, we both have very strongly uh, moralizing states that do things like uh, prohibiting alcohol uh, or in some jurisdictions or just no sales on Sunday, or uh, we would like this curriculum or not that curriculum in the schools or uh, uh, laws about obscenity and pornography and et cetera. You know, there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of different ways in which uh, we seek to uh, reinforce a particular moral vision using machinery of liberal democracy, using uh, the uh, outward forms. But I would say in the service of an ethos that comes from those uh, past societies that had uh, had uh, domus-like requirements on on their populations if they were if they were to survive, and uh, that it really is the origin of a great deal of of uh, traditional uh, traditionalist morality and and political efforts to enforce it. But if someone has a metaphysical commitment to a God that has specific beliefs about good and bad, or even a God that punishes certain things if they are done and punishes the entire community if they are done by one person, um, does that matter? Or are you, are you simply saying that all such metaphysical beliefs or most of them um, come from the sociological organization to justify it? as opposed to vice versa. Well, this is, this is where I would have to uh, ask that people with those sorts of metaphysical claims uh, make testable empirical claims alongside them if they want their uh, metaphysical program to be realized in uh, a society where not everyone agrees with the, the metaphysical things that they believe they need to, they need to do a bit more legwork at the very least and you know, show that uh, there will be some this-worldly harm, some cognizable, uh, demonstrable harm to uh, allowing people to, to have the liberty to, to pursue uh, same-sex attractions, for example, or the use of birth control. Uh, I don't see that we have the kind of uh, constraints that 
uh, dumbest having uh, societies uh, operated under anymore. I think that we are uh, we are materially uh, escaped from that equilibrium, and uh, we are not yet fully culturally escaped from it. And that's that's I think the next step. The harm line is interesting because for a lot of people who would stick to the Domus mindset are are fully immersed in it and believe that society should be structured around it and that a drift away from it is is at the very least immoral um, and probably should be prevented through state action, social shaming, whatever it happens to be. I think they would listen to that and say, this is harmful. Like, you are kidding yourself if you think that the kind of cosmopolitan, hedonistic, everybody-do-what-they-want, hyper-individualist society of these leftist enclaves on the coasts is, is actually beneficial. And that the more that society reflects those values, the more harm, directly harmed we all are. And we can imagine situations where someone is not actually just punching you in the face, but if the environment around you is so toxic that it is that it it bleeds into being actually harmful. And for these people, they especially if they're like neck deep in an authoritarian mindset, it is actually traumatic for them to be in that kind of environment, which looks like a harm. And I don't I don't buy that argument, obviously. Like I am a I think like dynamism, cultural dynamism is a moral imperative and that it is actually unethical to be socially conservative. But they're not going to they're gonna say like, look, this is harm. Like this actually it is harmful to me. So how do you uh, they may not even get that far. Uh, one of the one of the objections that I would expect someone in, uh, from the right to make to this essay is just to say, "Look, this isn't a continuation from ancient Sumer through Greece and Rome down to medieval Europe down to the present. That's not what this is. This is. I just want the family structure of the United States in the 1950s. That's all I want." And uh, I would urge them to consider that that structure was inherited. I would urge them to consider that that structure had a racial dimension, which we probably ought to talk about. And I would suggest that that racial dimension uh, does very much take us back to the ancient world. Uh, I would suggest that uh, this is, in fact, something that they are more... Uh, they are more attuned to than perhaps they realize. Uh, and I, I think that the, that conversation has to start out very slowly, though, because uh, it's not going to be so clear to them that uh, they are uh, participating in a super long uh, historical trend. But, but let's, let's, make, let's, you know, let's try to be clear on this. They are. And uh, the reason we don't have to keep doing that, the reason we don't have to keep to uh, the structures and the practices that we find in the 1950s is that uh, those were conservations of uh, a primarily agricultural uh, way of, of living. 
uh, and I'll, I'll just give an example from, from my own life. I used to live in the suburbs of DC and uh, then I took an all remote job and uh, I asked myself, okay, with an all remote job, where in the United States would I like to live? And the answer was Hawaii. So I moved to Hawaii and I moved my family out here. My husband has, my husband, by the way, my husband, not my wife, has an all remote job too. And we are raising our adopted daughter out here on the big island of Hawaii. And the reason that I was able to do that is that I'm not tied to the land. Uh, I'm not uh, in either the material sense or in the uh, sort of uh, psychic sense tied to the uh, house in the suburbs with the white picket fence. And uh, it looks exactly like my neighbor's house and we're all uh, you know, suburban conformists. We're not out here. We're, you know, we live in agricultural land and, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very different experience now. Uh, but I'm, I'm an agricultural tourist in a sense, because like I've got one papaya tree and, you know, some pineapple plants, but I'm not subsisting on them. You know, I'm, I'm not. And, uh, and most people don't have to. So, um, yeah, this is this is uh, the kind of uh, uh, cultural dynamism that I think uh, I think might be good to have more of, and uh, yet I found that man, it is a lot of bureaucratic work to move out to Hawaii. It is a huge amount of work, uh, and governments and banks and other institutions view you with a lot of suspicion when you try to do this. Now, why are you doing this? Are you sure you're going to be okay? Do you do you really think you want to? And and can you document this for me? And and why are you moving out of this house? So, well, is, is something wrong with your house? No, nothing's wrong with my house. I just want to live somewhere else. You know, I, there's nothing really per se wrong with it. It's just uh, I'd rather have a house here than there. And uh, uh, so I think well, the interest. I think listeners. I mean, the, your remarks about response to Aaron's question is the reductio would pop into their head that on one level, and this is one reason I asked you at the beginning, what's the normative point? Because on one level, we could say many things you think are inevitable are in fact contingent. Okay. On the other level, we cannot get to, therefore, we can organize human society however we want if we just will ourselves or understand that things are not are contingent and of course that doesn't follow from right i'm not thing, seeking to organize human you, society therefore how therefore yeah therefore but if things are contingent and how we organize human society therefore you know it doesn't mean that any social relationship is beyond anything that's traditional clearly might it doesn't if it's traditional it does not mean it's bad right it could be good um, and on another set, there are some limits to how we could put people together that we might care about, and tradition might inform some of those. Conservatives in the United States were absolutely right that the 20th century efforts to reorganize all of society by powerful central governments like the Soviet Union, Maoist China, and Nazi Germany were, were horrible. They were horrible yeah. uh, disasters that... Uh, we should absolutely not seek to emulate, but that doesn't mean that individual level social experimentation is wrong. That's a hasty move. That's uh, that's a move that uh, I don't think uh, can be justified. 
Uh, I'm not seeking to reorganize society. I'm certainly not saying everybody needs to move to the big island of Hawaii. I'm, I'm saying this is where I wanted to live. And, uh, and so I'm doing it. And I think that because people are all different, people uh, who become more mobile are going to end up living in lots of different places. And uh, that is a bit more like hunter-gathering and a bit less like living on the donuts. And uh, that's great. So I think you just touched on what I was about to ask for our final question, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Let's say that we could somehow undo the dominance of the Dhamma's mindset, that we could, we could pull this out of people's subconscious and get rid of the myths that prop it up and the, the beliefs that keep it so live. What would that look like? What would society look like if it were not reorganized, but just allowed to organize itself in ways that weren't directed by this mindset? I think we would have to give up on a lot of moral busybodiness. Uh, we would have to care less about uh, the way that our neighbors live, uh, which we would often find surprising, but also wonderful. Uh, I don't expect that I can uh, trace out exactly what all of uh, the implications to that would be. Uh, but uh, if you see your neighbor doing something that you didn't expect, and if it doesn't pick your pocket, and if it doesn't break your leg, and if you can put up with it, I would say, you know, this is what you need to do, put up with it, because you are probably living in a way that causes some amount of moral concern to others already. And so are we all. And uh, we are nonetheless drawn to one another through relationships of, of uh, commercial advantage. We trade with one another. And preserving those relationships, preserving relationships of, of trade with one another uh, is really important to all of our smaller uh, individualized or, or family-sized goals. Uh, we have uh, an important allegiance to conserve, which is not to the Lord anymore. It is to a system of impersonal relationships with others that allow us to coordinate our economic activity through trade. And that is harder to keep in one's head uh, as, as human beings, we always look for a person to be in charge or a person to be the agent of, of any particular situation. And uh, really what made it possible for me to do my big move and what makes it possible for uh, many different people to pursue many different modes of life all in the same society is not personal loyalty. It's the presence of a legal system and a system of property relations that allow for individual choice with predictable outcomes and with uh, the ability to make uh, long-range plans in harmony with the long-range plans of others uh, through buying and selling. So uh, a, a greater allegiance to the marketplace and a, a much attenuated 
allegiance to at least the terrestrial lords, as it were. Thank you for joining us on Freedom. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to get access to episode transcripts, bonus content, extended conversations, and our Discord community, go to freedom.audio/join.